First Samuel 25 in your Bibles, please. Still walking sequentially through First Samuel. And we come to a, a little bit of a, an aside this week. In Proverbs 31, verse 10, we read this. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The term virtuous woman is one that is often spoken of in Christian circles. Uh, it speaks not of a woman's particular skill set, uh, but of a woman's particular character. It speaks of a woman, uh, not, not one of perfection, but of integrity, of industry, of godliness. The word translated virtuous is one that is used a full 228 times in the Bible, but interestingly enough, only four times in reference to women. It's a word that we perhaps are quite familiar with in connection to men of the Bible, however. In the Old Testament, when you read the phrase a mighty man or a mighty man of valor or a mighty man of wealth or a mighty man of honor, mighty man of strength, this title uses this very same word. It's a title given to men who were, some were successful in battle, men such as Joshua, Caleb, Gideon, David, David's mighty men. They're even called his mighty men. That's the word, mighty. It's a word used of men who were successful in business. A man like Boaz, who was called a mighty man of wealth. Not because he was a great warrior. He was a, uh, he was a, a wealthy man. He was a, he was a businessman. It's generalized as a description of the kind of person who works hard, has integrity and work ethic, and does things God's way. Now, I mentioned earlier that this word is used in connection to women only four times in the Bible, and in fact, only one time in connection to a specific woman. And that specific woman, the only woman that is specifically called a virtuous woman in the Bible, is Ruth. And she, of course, being a Moabitess woman, having come back with her mother, Naomi, yielding the comfort and security of her own home in order to provide for those that were of her household, serving the needs of her mother-in-law, worked diligently in the fields to provide for her mother-in-law in the only way she knew how, a woman who displayed not just work ethic, but integrity and meekness and obedience in her actions. She's the only one that is actually connected to this word in the Bible. However, there are three other times where the word virtuous comes up or mighty in regard to women, and they are all in the book of Proverbs. They're not directed toward a specific woman, but toward the virtuous woman. But just because Ruth is the only woman specifically designated as virtuous in the Bible does not mean there are not other virtuous women that we see. And in fact, we are going to study a woman this morning who very well meets the description of a virtuous woman, one such today named Abigail. In 1 Samuel 25, we find the account of David, Nabal, and this woman named Abigail, and the title of our sermon is The Power of a Virtuous Wife. Our society is in a, a, a somewhat, it's not really a unique place, it's a unique place for our culture, as our culture had been uh, characteristically Judeo-Christian for so many years, and yet it's, it's, it's not really a unique place overall. But when it comes to the concerns of women, our culture has taken quite a turn in the last 50 years, hasn't it? Our, our culture has come to a place where they're convinced that a woman's strength is in her ability to act the same way that men act and to achieve the same things that men achieve. Culture perceives a strong and a powerful woman on the basis of her willingness to break the mold of feminine stereotypes, to assert herself, to speak her mind, to fight for her rights and for her opinions. But the Bible paints a very different picture of what a woman of power and influence is. In the Bible, this woman is not the woman who is asserting her rights, but rather the woman who is actively yielding her rights. Not the woman who uses her strength to impose her will, but the woman who uses her strength to submit her will. And by doing so, she becomes a woman of power, of influence, of virtue in a way she could never 
otherwise be. And today, this is what we're going to see through the example of Abigail in 1 Samuel 25. We're going to see a virtuous woman. And as we consider her example, we will find that she is a woman worthy to be emulated, not because she broke herself outside of God's expectations or the biblical expectations of gender role and societal constraint, but rather because she exemplified what it means to be a virtuous woman in the eyes of God. Our text opens today with what is perhaps one of the most impactful days of that generation in Israel. In verse chap- in, uh, chapter 25, verse 1, look what it says with me. And Samuel died. And all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Samuel was a man of influence in the nation that they probably had not seen since the days of Joshua. He is a man that loved the Lord. He is a man that served the Lord. He is a man that reflected the will and the Word of God to the people. He united the people under the banner of the Word of God and under the banner of the will of God. And that is where his loyalty lies. The Scriptures tell us that all Israel was gathered together and lamented him. On that day, Israel lost a great leader, perhaps one of their greatest leaders, and certainly a great man of God. Now, it might seem interesting that little more is said about Samuel than this. I mean, Samuel was such an influential man. This book is called 1 Samuel, and it gives one verse and not even the entire verse based upon how they broke it up in our Bibles. Not even the entire verse to Samuel's death. He died, Israel lamented him, now we're moving on. And yet, as we think about what 1 Samuel has taught us, about how many times we have seen the importance of humility and the the exemplary character of a man tied to his humility. It might be befitting a man of God like Samuel that the Scriptures would not give too much time to him. For that's probably the way he would have wanted it, as a man of humility like he was. Now, we do not know if David was able to go to the funeral. My guess would be he probably was not able to go to the funeral as he was still fleeing from Saul and would have needed to remain uh, outside of the areas where Saul might find him. Yet the Scriptures don't tell us one way or another, but what we do know is that at the end of this time, he arises from where he is, which last time we saw him, he was in Moab in in the hold, and he goes down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, Paran is uh, to the southwest of the Dead Sea, quite south in Israel, but certainly still in Israel. And in that area around the wilderness of Paran were uh, cities and areas, um, the cities and regions surrounding the cities of Mayan and Carmel. Now, this is not the Carmel that we see in Elijah's day. That Carmel is way northwest in Israel. This is a Carmel that's south. It's a completely different city. And it's very closely connected to the city of Mayan, so much so that, that they were very, I mean, they were within walking distance of another, very quick to get there, very close together. And verse 2 introduces us to a great man who lived there, a wealthy man that lived in Mayan and had his possessions in Carmel. Look at it with me. It says, And there was a man in Mayan whose possessions were in Carmel, and the man was very great, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. He was a man of great wealth. 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, that, that's, that's, a, that's great wealth for that time. And the, t- the Bible gives us more about his character than just the fact that he was a wealthy man in verse 3. Scriptures tell us, Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding, and of a beautiful countenance. But the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. So the, name, the, the man Nabal is introduced as not a great man. In fact, his name literally means fool or foolish. We would assume from this that this was probably not his birth name, and it was probably a name given to him by the people that interacted with him. We can't know that for sure, as that's, that's what he's called throughout the text but I don't know what parent would be unkind enough to name their child fool. I guess you never know. But David uh, will be interacting with them in just a moment. So Nabal is a man, and and it immediately says his name was Nabal, but then it shoots over to his wife, and it says her name was Abigail, and she was, the Scripture tells us, a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. She was wise, 
she had good understanding, and then she was also beautiful. That word countenance would mean outline or figure or shape or appearance. So she was, in fact, a beautiful woman, but she was also a very wise woman, a woman of good understanding. And then it comes back to Nabal. Nabal, on the other hand, in contrast to his wife, was churlish, the scripture tells us, and evil in his doings. That word churlish in the English, if you were to look that up in a dictionary that might still have that word, um, that word churlish would literally mean um, rude or unfeeling, without feeling. In the Hebrew, the word carries the idea of being very severe in action, uh, very severe in words. So a, a severe man, a harsh man, an, an angry man. Churlish is really a good uh, translation of it, if we know what the word churlish means. A man that doesn't really have much feeling, a man that doesn't really care much about others. He was a man with little interest for anything other than himself and for his own. And the scriptures also mention that he's of the house of Caleb. Now, if you were to trace this back, you would, would find, or perhaps you recall, that the house of Caleb would have been from the house of Judah. And so he was a Judite, or a Jew, as was David, which means these men are from the same tribe. They're both Judites. They're, of course, all of Israel is related, but these men would have been much closer. They, they're of the same tribe in Israel. Now, verses 4 and 5 tell us this, And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. And David sent out ten young men, and David said unto the young men, Get you up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. David heard that Nabal had come into the area to shear his sheep, and he sought to use this occasion to, to implore his kindness and his favor. So David sends ten men to Nabal, and he sends them in his name. Now, I'm not going to read all the passage this morning, especially this morning, we're a little short on time, but uh, the message tells us in verses 6 through 8 that what David's messengers found was this. His men go to the, um, um, or excuse me, the message which David was to deliver was this, found in verses 6 through 8. So David and his men had been in the wilderness of Paran, and they had surrounded those shepherds who were taking care of their master's sheep. David had been very good to the shepherds of Nabal. He had not taken any of the sheep. By extension, thus, he was being good to Nabal himself. By protecting Nabal's shepherds and his sheep, he was protecting Nabal's interests. It would have been expected, and it would have been kind of built into the cost of doing business, you might say, in the shepherding profession, that a man would expect to lose a certain number of his flock, He'd lose them to raiders. He'd lose them to wild animals. He'd lose a certain number. David took it upon himself to protect this flock much better than the shepherds could have done and to protect the shepherds themselves as well. And so in doing so, David has become a direct help to Nabal, protecting Nabal's assets and through his own efforts, really making Nabal far more successful bringing a much greater advantage to Nabal and his household. And as would be custom in Hebrew culture, it would be expected that as David had been extremely kind to Nabal, that David should be able to expect some kindness in return. He had done a definitive benefit for Nabal and his family. And he is asking in return that Within the context of this particular time, Nabal would have been shearing a sheep. At the end of the, the time of shearing, there would have been a great feast. And David basically asking if he can be adjoined to that feast. If he and his men can partake of their goods during that feast, if they can have some food. It's not too much to ask for, for what David had done for them. And in fact, it would have been very much expected in the culture that Nabal would have done so. However, Nabal's response is not what David might have expected. We find it beginning in verse 9, and I'm going to read through verse 11. And when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all those words in the name of David and ceased. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, this is Nabal's response, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed from my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? Nabal's response verifies the claim in verse 3 that he is a man who is churlish and evil. His response is not just who is David as in ignorance. 
Not just, I don't know who David is. This response is saying, what good is David to me? It's a, a response of disesteem. It's a response of scorn. And he heightens this scorn by saying, you know, there are many men who break away from their masters. Should I feed them all? The idea is that David is just one of the rabble of dishonorable men who blaspheme their master and who blaspheme their God by running away. It's a huge slight to the character of David, putting all the blame on him for what is happening between him and Saul right now, effectively claiming that David is little more than a runaway, a man of dishonor, a man unworthy of Nabal's consideration, much less kindness or concern. And so basically he says, should I give my goods to people like that? You're not worth my time, David. And really, Nabal's response is little more than just to cover for his anger and for his greed. He doesn't want to give of anything he has. Now, um, in verses 12 and 13, it records what happens when David's servants bring this message back to him. And we read this. So David's young men turned their way and went again and came and told him all those sayings. And David said unto his men, Gird ye every man his sword. And they girded every man his sword, and David also girded his sword, and there went up after David about 400 men, and 200 abode with the stuff. So David is absolutely livid at this response. And he says, that's it. Get your sword on. Get your armor on. We're going to go kill this guy, and we're going to go kill everyone in his household. And so now David and, and 400 of his 600 men are marching against this man's household, this man's servants. He is absolutely offended that Nabal would respond to him that way. Now, Nabal's response didn't just shock David's servants, however. It also shocked Nabal's servants. The shepherds that had been blessed by David and his men knew full well what Nabal had just done and the danger within which Nabal just placed them all. So one of Nabal's servants goes to his wife, a woman named Abigail, and tells her of the situation. David's men had been good to us. He protected us. And now Nabal has effectively spat in David's face. And he says this in verse 17. Now therefore know, this is the servant speaking to Abigail, know and consider what thou wilt do, for evil is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him. The servant effectively says that Nabal is such a selfish man, a self-absorbed man, an angry man, that you can't reason with him. And so the servants came up to Abigail, his wife, and said, Abigail, look, we are all in danger here and your husband is an unreasonable man. He, you cannot reason with him. He doesn't care. He has said these things to David. David is going to be angry. What can we do about this? And so he comes to Nabal's wife, hoping that in her wisdom, she's a woman of understanding, the Scriptures told us, she can do something or she can say something that might resolve the situation. And indeed, she does. In verses 18 and 19, we read this, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep ready dressed, five measures of parched corn, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on asses. And she said unto her servants, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband, Nabal. So she puts together a huge feast. 200 loaves of bread. We see here it says two bottles. These would not be bottles like we would think. It would be very large goat skins full of wine. So uh, uh, lots and lots of, of um, food, lots of drink, plenty to go around here. She gets it together. She gets the, the um, sheep, five sheep ready dressed. She gets the parched corn, which is a corn that's kind of cooked in oil and dried. Um, and cakes of figs and, and puts it all together and she is going to go out and she is going to try to solve this problem and she's going to do it without telling her husband. Now, this is a strategic decision. She does this not meaning to dishonor her husband, but if we can put it this way, to help him in spite of himself. She knows what he needs and she is going to help him in spite of himself here. This, uh, so she's not going to tell him what she's doing because who knows what he would have done. Now, as David's moving towards the hill, the text tells us Abigail, is she'll present herself to David. She's kind of waiting for him at a certain spot, a strategic location, where she can present herself and maybe if he decides to attack her right away, there can be some protection for her. Verse 21 and 22 tells us this, and David, uh, now David had said, this is what's going through his mind, surely in vain have I kept all that this fellow hath in the wilderness. I've done this for nothing. 
so that nothing was missed of all that pertained unto him. And he hath requited me evil for good. So and more also do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave all that pertain to him by the morning light, any that pisseth against the wall. And so uh, the, David recognized here that Nabal's response to him was not just neutral. It was deeply offensive. It was evil. It was kind of like, you know, in the, in the, the, you might see in a cartoon or something, someone go up with a glove and smack the guy in the face and, you know, challenge him to a duel. This was a challenge. This was, this was deeply offensive. And so what he was going to do, his strategy was, I'm going to go and I'm going to kill every man of the household. And that's what it means by that phrase, he that pisseth against the wall. This is a good translation of the Hebrew. It's a little crude in our understanding today, uh, but it is a good translation of the Hebrew text. And for those among us who are old enough to understand the differences between male and female anatomy, you understand here that there's only one gender that can successfully do this. And so it, it is speaking of all the males of the household um, and uh, oftentimes it's even spoken of not just of humans, but of animals as well, as we understand the same dynamic between, the way, between males and females here. So it, it is a little bit crude in our culture, and in other translations it has um, softened that simply by saying all the men or all the males. Uh, yet, as you look at the Hebrew, this is almost a, uh, an exact literal rendition of what the Hebrew says, and it's simply one of the ways that they designated all the men, as opposed to simply all the people. But notice how Abigail presents herself to David in verse 23 through 25. And when Abigail saw David, she hasted and lighted off her ass and fell down before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaiden, I pray thee, speak in thine audience. And hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal. For he, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord whom thou didst send. So Abigail falls on her face before David in abject humility, right at his feet, and takes the offense upon herself, asking that David might be willing to listen as she seeks to repair the damage that has been done. She asks David not to regard the words of her husband Nabal, calling him a man of Belial and a man of foolishness. Now, if you remember back from earlier in 1 Samuel, when we talked about that word Belial, it literally means worthlessness. It was oftentimes used as a description of, idol, of idols uh, and idolatry and such. Uh, people of Belial, uh, idols of Belial, is even used as a name um, to speak of the false gods themselves, Belial. And yet it's a word that literally means worthless. Simply put, she acknowledges here. She's like, David, yeah, my husband is a bad man. She's admitting that to David. He's a bad man. But for Nabal's sake, um, she's going to try to stand between him and David. She takes the offense upon herself, hoping to protect her husband. She tells David that Nabal is a bad man. Naturally, he would have no concern over rejecting David for his kindness. But that Nabal's attitude is not representative of the attitude of the entire household. Had David's men made it to Abigail, the conversation would have been very different. She would have accommodated them and blessed them for their goodness. So she takes the offense upon herself. She says, it's my fault for not having seen you for not having seen your servants. It's my fault for not getting them before my churlish husband did. It's my fault for, for that. And she takes the offense upon herself. Very virtuous. What a, what a kind thing to do. She continues in verses 26 through 31. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now let thine enemies... And they that seek evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now this blessing which thine handmaid hath brought unto my Lord, let it even be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of the Lord. And evil hath not been found in thee all thy days, yet a man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God and the souls of thine enemies. Them shall he sling out 
as out of the middle of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he hath spoken concerning thee and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel that this shall be no grief unto thee nor offense of thy heart of heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless or that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thy handmaid. So she basically is coming to this man. She's humbling herself before him. And interestingly enough, she's kind of reversing everything Nabal said. She says, I know that you have been falsely accused. Everyone knows that you're running from a crazy man. Everyone knows that you've done nothing wrong here. Everyone knows that Saul is in the wrong. She's very careful with her words and very deliberate with her words. She shows David the most respectful and submissive way possible, in the most respective and submissive way possible, that his actions are going to be detrimental to him if he continues here. It's going to be detrimental to his authority. It's going to be detrimental to his testimony. That the foolishness of Nabal is, de- is beneath his dignity in reply. In the same way that last week you recall David said he would not kill Saul because he would not stoop to the wickedness of the man who was chasing him. Abigail saying the same thing today. Don't stoop to the indignity and the wickedness of the man who has done you a wrong. But she's saying it very carefully. She's saying it very gently. She's saying it very respectfully. Again, in verse 28, she casts her husband's faults upon herself, asking David to forgive her for her trespass and in doing so, acting as a shield to the poor decision that her husband made. She's interceding here for him on his behalf. She blesses David, desiring that the Lord would establish him directly in relation to the degree to which he is willing to be forgiving here. And to the degree to which he will overlook this trespass. And then she seeks to give David a new perspective on his actions. She encourages David to look forward to the day when not he avenged himself, but when God avenges him of his enemies. And her wish for him is that on that day, he would look back and he'd have no regrets over the actions of this particular day. That David would not succumb to the regrets of an impulsive decision of the shedding of blood, the blood of his brethren, without legitimate cause. Now Nabal has offended him, but Saul has offended him and he's allowing the Lord to deal with Saul. So why wouldn't he allow the Lord to avenge himself on Nabal? And then she asks in conclusion that the day David does look back and thinks of all these things that he would think of her as well, that he would remember her in that day. Now, David was deeply blessed by Abigail's wisdom. She effectively came up and said, very respectfully and very submissively, this really isn't what you want to do. You want to let the Lord avenge you. Remember, David, let the Lord avenge you. And remember as well that Nabal doesn't represent every man in the household. David was blessed. Her perspective, her character, her wisdom... She appealed to him respectfully. She pacified his anger. She slowed his actions. She gave him perspective. She took the fault upon herself and amended the wrong by providing the men with food. And he responds thus in verses 32 to 35. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice. And blessed be thou, which hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood and avenging myself with mine own hand. For in very deed, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, which hath kept me back from hurting thee. Excuse me. Just lost my place here. There we go. Except thou hast hasted and come to meet me, surely there hast not been left unto Nabal by this morning light any that pisseth against the wall. So David received of her hand that which she had brought him, all the food, and said unto her, Go in peace to thy house. See, I have hearkened to thy voice and I have accepted thy person. So David blesses Abigail for her godly advice, which turned his heart and mind away from the wrath which he had intended. And he accepts the food gladly and he lets her go back home and, and um, they go their separate ways. Now the scriptures tell us as we close out this chapter that Nabal had no idea what happened the night before. He was drunk. He was completely out of it. He had no idea what had happened. He may have even been drunk when, when he responded to the men the way he responded. We, we don't know. But he was drunk. He woke up in the morning and it was told him what happened. And the scriptures tell us that when it was told what happened, he just, um, his reaction was, was 
to just kind of fall into a stupor, to, to just basically pass out, keel over, fall down, nearly dead. And the Scriptures tell us that whatever happened, he didn't recover and 10 days later he died. It may have been a heart attack. It may have been a stroke. It may have been the fear that was in him that he almost lost everything that he had, that he almost lost his life, whatever it was. He just kind of falls over and 10 days later he dies. When David hears this, he regards this as the avenging of the Lord upon the wrong of Nabal. And he goes back and the Scriptures tell us that he takes Abigail to be his wife. And when Abigail sees him coming and hears that he is asking to, uh, for her to be his wife, she says this in verse 41. She arose and bowed herself to the fa- uh, on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of, thy, of the servants of my Lord. So yet another fantastically submissive, virtuous comment that she is stepping into this role. And the Scriptures tell us that David, in fact, took two wives while he was in exile, Abigail being the one, and then a woman named Ahinoam of Jezreel. In this case, likely not the city of Jezreel, but Jezreel was another name for the tribe of Issachar. The text finally tells us that Saul had taken Michael, who was David's first wife, and given her to another man in spite. And so... Though she was already married to David, she was given to another man, and David took these two wives while he was in exile. So we finish our exposition today. I'd like us to cover two points of application in regard to particularly Abigail and her actions. And our application points, first first point is this. The actions of a virtuous woman are rooted in her submission. The actions of a virtuous woman are rooted in in her submission. As we consider the life of Abigail, we understand submission to be the template within which she operated here. Her actions were directed toward obedient submission to her husband and also to David. In the face of her husband's poor choices and actions, she did not direct blame toward her husband, but rather assumed the fault upon herself for her offense or for the offenses which Nabal had done and which David had received. When confronted with David's poor choices and actions in response, she did not openly rebuke David, but rather honored him and respectfully brought him into consideration to the negative consequences that would follow his impetuous and vengeful actions. She was a woman of action. She was a woman of industry. She was a woman that was busy about her household, but it was careful action. It was considered action. Now, the Bible teaches us that there are two genders, male, female, and that men and women are different. As humans and in Christ, men and women are 100% equal. A woman is not any lesser of a person than a man. A woman has every bit the natural dignity that is afforded to those who are made in the image of God. Spiritually speaking, men and women are 100% equal. We mentioned this in Sunday school this morning. One's gender does not in any way give one, uh, give an advantage to one before the throne of God or a disadvantage to one before the throne of God. Galatians 3.28 tells us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. So men and women share human dignity. They're 100% equal. Men and women share spiritual opportunity and spiritual standing. They're 100% equal. But what men and women do not share is the God-ordained gender roles, is a role in society, in church, and in family. The Scriptures tell us, rather, that God has ordained men and women to function in different ways in society, church, and family, and that He has designed them to function best within the context of their ordained role. Now, the places where we see this most evidently is in the role of men and women in the family. And we understand this from... Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24, which tells us this. And recall, we we are speaking of Abigail. I will mention men this morning, but we are speaking uh, to the women as that's the example of Abigail. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 says this, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands, in everything. 
Now, these verses tell us in the context of home and family that the husband is given the responsibility and the privilege of leading the wife and the wife has been given the responsibility and privilege of lovingly receiving his leadership and his love. Now, notice how I said that and notice that the woman's role is intended to reflect the church. And what we know about the church is that the church is designed to be a receptor to the love of Christ, not an initiator of the love of Christ. Christ has done everything for the church and the church is meant to respond in turn. So men, I, I, I do begin with you, though we'll be focusing on the women. You're intended to reflect Christ, the initiator, and you are the one that is to be the sacrificer. Christ gave all he had for the church even unto death. And husband, you are supposed to give everything you have to your wife even unto death. Every ounce of careful love, of thoughtful leadership, of tireless provision. That is your part to play. Now, Christ is not a dictator, is He? When you look at the example of Christ, we don't see Him dictate. He's patient. He's kind. He's loving. He's gentle. He's thoughtful. He leads by example, not by demand. He doesn't goad us. That's not how Christ leads us. He walks and says, follow me. He's never asked us to do anything that He did not first do setting an example for us to follow. He was tempted in all points like as we, the Scriptures tell us, and yet without sin. He washed the feet of His disciples and then told His disciples, go and do likewise. He forgave His murderers and then called His disciples to forgive others as He forgave. Men, to lead your wife as Christ leads the church, to love your wife as Christ loved the church, is to lead and to love by example not by demand. You want her to have a good work ethic? Be an example of good work ethic. You want her to be patient? Be an example of patience. Know her. Love her. Care for her. And then watch her blossom. In the same way that Christ loves His church and the church responds in turn. Now, in much the same way, the concept of the woman being the submissive party in the marriage is not intended in any way to be apart from the husband's self-sacrificing love, respect, servant's heart. It is intended to operate as a response to the husband's self-sacrificing love, respect, and servant's heart. This is Submission is not a word about women being walked all over. It's not a word about women being miserable. It's not a word about women being completely stepped on. It's a word about women fulfilling the God-given role that they have in their family and in their marriage. In the same way the church journeys through life seeking to align herself with Christ's will, that's what we're doing here this morning, right? Through the Word of God, and then walk together with Christ in joy and in love, a marriage is meant to be a blessed partnership between the man and the woman where the man leads in love, doing what is best for his family, doing what is best for his wife, and then the woman dedicates herself to aligning herself with her husband's goals, with her husband's will, and then they walk together in joy and love. The man going in the direction that the Lord is leading him as to provide for his, his family. The wife completely coming alongside the husband and facilitating him in any way possible to help him meet his goals and help align with him with his desires and his will. So the gender roles are designed to work in harmony one with another in the, in the marriage and in family. And what this means is that the woman is best able to fulfill her role of submission when the man is fulfilling his role of love and of protection and of leadership. Likewise, the man is best able to be the protector, leader, and loving nurturer that he is called to be when his wife is selflessly aligning herself with his vision and his decisions. It's symbiotic. It's intended to be at least. Now that being said, while the gender roles are designed to work in harmony with one another, our obligation, men and women, your obligation to fulfill your part of the marriage is not dependent on whether or not your spouse is fulfilling theirs. What this means is this. Husband, you have the biblical obligation to love your wife as Christ loves the church regardless of whether or not your wife submits to you. Wife, 
you have the biblical obligation to submit yourself to your husband and align yourself with his leadership and vision regardless of whether or not he loves you as he ought. Now, such was the case with Abigail. It's supposed to be an easy, symbiotic thing. Abigail didn't have that privilege. She had a churlish and evil husband. But what do we see her do? We see her stand between David and her husband and seek at potential cost to her own life to protect her husband, to support him, and to undo what he did through his wickedness. She had a husband totally unworthy of submission, totally unworthy of her, but she still served a God who is absolutely worthy of obedience. And that's the issue, wives. At the end of the day, the issue is not about whether your husband is worthy. It's not about whether your husband is doing his part. Your husband will stand before God one day and he will answer for how he loved you, how he provided for you, how he nurtured you, how he protected you, how he did everything he's supposed to do for you. He'll answer to God for that. You will stand before God and answer one day for how you submitted to him regardless of whether or not he loved you as he ought. That is your responsibility. And, it, and you don't do it for him. It's easier to do it for him if he's doing right by you. But that's not the point. The point is not him. The point is what has God asked you to do? You do it for God's sake, not for his sake. And by the way, when you do it God's way, oftentimes the relationship, good things happen. Go to 1 Peter 3 and read about that. We'll talk about that in just a moment, in fact. So Proverbs 31, verses 10 and 12, contemplate the virtuous woman and it says this, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. That's the virtuous woman. Abigail, in the midst of a churlish and evil man, is doing him good and not evil all the days of her life. Now, as we consider uh, female virtue and submission, we recognize that this idea does also carry over to other parts of society and the church as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, the Scriptures tell us, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. This passage gives us a principle of headship which tells us that women are to command a submissive role in the assembly and in society in the same way they, sub they command a submissive role in the home. And in regard to the church, we get a better picture of what God is saying. You say, well, pastor, silence. Does that mean that women can't talk? There are churches that take it that way. That's not how we understand this. And we do so because of the principle that's espoused in two different places in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse and chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians 14 verses 34 and 35 we find this. Let your women keep silence in the churches for it is not permitted unto them to speak but they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything let them ask their husbands at home for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. As I mentioned we don't interpret this to mean that women cannot speak at all. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 5, and this is why, we read this. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep ordinances, as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. So in this passage, we, we could talk about head coverings and we recognize that the idea here is a cultural reflection of submission. But as we consider this, Paul doesn't say the women don't pray or prophesy, but rather they simply pray or prophesy within the context of submission. And prophesy there means to speak the word of the Lord. And because we recognize what this says in 1 Corinthians 11 about the women having a role here as, as a part of prayer and of prophecy, and 1 Corinthians being instruction to the local church, we at Legacy Baptist Church are comfortable with the understanding that women were given some opportunity to speak or to pray in the midst of spiritual meetings, gatherings. 
And because of that, we carry that understanding into 1 Corinthians 14, which is in the same epistle, just a few chapters later, where Paul is now saying, let your women keep silence in the churches, not permitted unto them to speak. But when we look at that word there right near the end of this passage, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. If you look at the Greek word behind that word ask, it is a word that means to authoritatively demand or the idea of to charge or to rebuke or in some manner of speech to step outside of the context of submission. And in the context of the Bible, uh, this, it, the scriptures tell us that she needs to relay those concerns to her husband at home rather than speak them herself in the church. And so we at Legacy Baptist Church are comfortable having women speak and pray in the assembly as long as there is evident submission to the God-ordained authorities, whether that's husband, father, and then certainly to church leaders as applicable. And so we believe that though we, we don't explicitly disallow women to speak on Tuesday night, Sunday school, certain aspects of prayer, we seek to conform ourselves to the principle of submission that would undergird anything that the woman says in the assembly so that her husband, her father, and the church leaders are in approval of her speech and, and that is done so in a submissive way. And so we extend this principle. We recognize women do not teach men. That's very clear in the scripture that women do not assume leadership roles in the church. All of that is contrary to God's design. So thinking back to Abigail, and the reason why we bring that up is because she wasn't just submissive to her husband, was she? She was also submissive in the way that she approached David. She admits that to David that her husband is a fool, that he's a man of Belial. But what else does she do? She takes his offense upon herself. She buffers him. Not once, but twice. In verses 24 and 28, she becomes the protection for her husband. Likewise, Abigail was extremely submissive to David. She has no direct obligation to David, but recognizes him to be a leader in Israel and the anointed of the Lord. As such, she does not openly rebuke him for his impetuous anger, but respectfully warns him against the potential negative consequences of his poor decisions. She appeals respectfully rather than openly rebukes. And ladies, be it whatever context within which we speak, family, church, and society, there's little question that men make bad decisions, right? There's no one that's going to question that. We, 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 we don't always make good decisions. It's not necessarily your lot in life to sit quiet and zip your lips and just roll over while we barrel down the hill to our doom. But as we're choosing the method in which we correct or as we're choosing the way in which we interact, we need to do so in a manner that is right, biblically. And your hope would be then that the spiritual authority in your life would recognize his fault and correct his actions as David did, praising Abigail for her kindness and for her gentle wisdom. So first, the actions of a virtuous woman are rooted in submission. Second, the beauty and strength of a virtuous woman is rooted in her character. Abigail was a woman of physical beauty. Verse 3 told us that, that she was a woman with a beautiful countenance. But Proverbs 31 verse 30 tells us this, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Women, it's not a bad thing for you to be pretty, for you to have a beautiful appearance. But if you have allowed the culture in which we live to, con to convince you that you are defined by your physical appearance, you have been deceived by culture. Your beauty does not rest in outward appearance. Your beauty rests in the content of your character. Your strength does not rest in your ability to manipulate or seduce, but in the exemplary reflection of biblical femininity that you can bring forth. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, we read this, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. We've already referenced that last verse, but the verses pr prior to it speak of the woman's testimony. 
The beautiful woman is not the woman loaded with jewelry or makeup or expensive trendy clothes or the lack thereof. These things are not wrong. The beautiful woman is the one who is clothed in the godly character of good works. Modest apparel, in other words, apparel that's not drawing attention to yourself, apparel that is not drawing attention to that which is not necessary to draw attention unto, shamefacedness and sobriety, looks and actions directed not towards attention or seduction, but toward love and good works. If I may summarize, God doesn't want you drawing attention to you because of your appearance. God wants you drawing attention because of your godliness. And by the way, single ladies, young ladies in this room, how you get them is how you keep them. You don't want a young man that is drawn to you primarily or exclusively because of how you look. You want a young man that is drawn to you primarily because of how you love God. A man like that is worth the wait. And how you get them is how you keep them. You're not going to be pretty forever. But if it's your character that is exemplified, you've got a firm foundation. And again, I mentioned it's not wrong, ladies, to be beautiful. Nor do you as women need to go out of your way to minimize the beauty that God has given to you. He's given it to you. But it does not reflect well on a woman's character when it becomes clear that she has gone out of her way to draw, her atten- to draw your attention or to draw others' attention to her physical appearance rather than to the content of her character. Even more specific in this regard is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-4. through 4. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear whose adorning let it not be the, that outward adorning of plating of hair or of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. When a person interacts with you your godly character ought to shine out from you as brightly as anything else. Your ornament should not be material, but the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which the Bible says to God is of great price. Abigail was a woman of virtue, a woman to be praised, a godly example. She wasn't a perfect woman. No one is. But what we see is a woman whose virtues shined above all else in her treatment toward the authorities in her life. She had a terrible husband, yet she sought to align herself with him and protect him even at her own expense. She interacted with this impetuous warrior who was ready to kill everyone for an offense against him. Yet she handled him with the utmost respect and dignity and care and changed his mind. And it is such character that causes one to echo the words of King Lemuel, which his mother taught to him in Proverbs 31.10, the words that we began with this morning and the words that we'll end with this morning. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. Let's pray together.